Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. It's the Ad Week podcast where we talk about advertising, marketing, media, pop culture, uh, because in the end, just about everything is an ad for something else. Uh, I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with adweek.com. And with me, as always, is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, how are you? Hey, good, David. How are you? I'm good. It's good to have you back. Thank you. And uh, this week, uh, we've got a frequent guest, Christina Monlos, one of our staff writers. How are you, Christina? Firing on all cylinders. Oh, I'm so glad to hear and uh, back this week is Katie Richards, another staff writer. How are you, Katie? I am wonderful, thank you. It's Advertising Week New York. I'm jazzed about it. Such an exciting <laughs> time. It's like Christmas come early for the marketing world. Uh, so we will be talking about that quite a bit. Uh, on today's podcast, we are going to be talking about, as I mentioned, Advertising Week New York, uh, a week-long event that draws marketers and advertisers from all over the country and parts of the world to come to Scenic Times Square, which is very close to our offices, so that's convenient for us. We can just walk over there whenever we'd like. There are sessions all week. Uh, We're going to be talking about the trends, the topics, the exciting discussions going on this week. Uh, But before then, we've also got uh, lots of news in the ad world and in the media world, and in this case, the election. So we're going to be talking about the first presidential uh, debate. And we are going to talk about ads worth watching, our favorite roundup of the best work that's worth your time. So we're going to dive right into it. First on the news, did everyone watch the debate? Of course. Indeed. I only watched part of it. Which which part? (laughs) The good parts. (laughs) I don't know. Just the second half. I wanted to turn it off many times. I, the anxiety level of the last like third or fourth of it was pretty intense. Like, and I saw several people tweeting about that, that like, I am really uncomfortable right now. And I think that just reflected the... Uh, kind of the tone, how it started off. I think these are two candidates, uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, who famously dislike each other, are very polarized uh, opposites. And so I think a lot of people expected them to come out uh, swinging, especially Trump. Uh, There were some questions about whether he would dive in aggressively or not. Uh, In fact, it was pretty measured and pretty uh, calm for the first 45 minutes. Uh, Lots of interruptions, lots of snarky little back and forth but not the kind of fisticuffs uh, that maybe we were expecting, but that sure, we got there uh, pretty quick. You wouldn't necessarily imagine that you'd be watching a presidential debate and have someone go wrong or facts <laughs> or just interject in the way that Trump did. And I was waiting for someone to measure how many times he actually did interrupt her. And I think it was over 50 times. Yeah, well, I think totally it was over 50. I can't remember if it was him or if that was him and Lester Holt. Uh, between the two of them, they interrupted Hillary uh, well over 50 times. 
Uh, and that was certainly a frequent point of discussion on Twitter throughout the night. It was something that people came in. Sadly, I mean, to me, that's the saddest part is that people came into it expecting that the female candidate would get interrupted more than anyone else. Uh, there was a lot of criticism about Lester Holt. I guess let's start there. Just what did you guys think of Lester Holt's uh, moderation? I think I feel like being a debate moderator, especially at the presidential level, is kind of an unwinnable prospect. But I didn't see a whole lot of positivity about uh, about his performance. What, what did you guys think? You know, I thought he struggled a little bit to rein Trump in. I mean, Trump was clearly went into this debate. Um, he was going to say whatever he wanted to say, and he wasn't going to be quieted down. So even I think Lester knew that even if he tried to sort of keep Trump on track, that Trump would just continue being Trump. So, you know, it is, it is a difficult job. Um, I think he did fine. I mean, you know, he wasn't the story at the end of the night. So I think that's the main thing. I th that's what, you know, a moderator wants is just to kind of stay out of the fray and you know, have nothing sort of negative. I think he was he was pretty, you know, careful not to not to create a headline himself, which is probably good. Um, and I think, you know, I think Hillary was kind of stood her own. I don't think I don't think she either of them necessarily needed uh, that much more uh, from the moderator. Um, so that's also speaks highly of, of, you know, I think he gauged the, the tone of the room and, and did a, a pretty admirable job in the end. I mean, she more than stood her own. Could you imagine being on stage with someone constantly interrupting you with nonsense and keeping that kind of composure? Also, back to Lester Holt for a second, there was one of my favorite tweets of the night, which was like, um, cut to Lester Holt, Holt off screen, and it was some screen grab that someone had gotten from, I think, the Today Show or something, where he's taking a shot <laughs> it's just like, you know, it, it, it's sort of understood that he's in a, a crap position. Um, and also that I don't know if anyone would really do better than he is doing. Like, do we know who the moderators are for the next two debates? We do. I just don't. <laughs> um, and tr I feel like I read a headline that Trump is already threatening to be like, not doing it. Not doing the other two. Well, yeah, his post-mortem uh, was very odd because he seemed kind of happy at the end of the thing. And then he, he probably must have read all the headlines about how bad he did and suddenly got all offended. And now he's blaming his microphone and everything else. I mean, I, I, I agree with you, by the way, going back to Hillary. I think she did a great job. Um, but, you know, it's, it's still Hillary and she still kind of has a, has a hard time communicating in a way that seems natural to me. So I think, you know, I think Trump, uh, Trump supporters will point to that and say, well, he clearly sort of had the better debate. So I, I, in the end, I'm not sure if it really changed anything. Well, at the very least, in, in terms of like uh, our coverage, she she kind of did something that I don't think I've ever seen before, where she set up an ad like she set up you wanting to watch this ad that her campaign just dropped by mentioning um, the Miss Universe contestant that Trump had treated very poorly, and that brought her back into the news cycle. And then the next morning, her ad team dropped this ad where it's um, the woman, her name is Alicia Machado, um, telling her story about what Trump did to her and what her experience was like and you know being fat shamed by this man who could be in office and it, it I don't know I don't think I've ever seen a setup for for a campaign ad like that I don't know about you guys that is interesting I mean the whole debate is is an ad for each side right so 
Um, but yeah, that was a cool thing. Like, you know, she definitely mentioned that and then had this great spot ready to go in the morning. I mean, it was pretty good media planning. Well, and, and similarly, at the, she started out the entire debate by saying, go to my website for real-time fact-checking, uh, which I thought, to your point, was also this kind of, that it's not something you're used to hearing, like a pitch for their website at the beginning, like, well, before I get started, <laughs> visit Hillary. You know, it's just, um, so there were a few of those kind of interesting uh, modern moments. Uh, let's talk ratings for a minute. Uh, they the kind of sum total. This is a tough one to get the uh, a big number around because it was on 13 English and Spanish networks. Uh, that were that are measured. Uh, it was covered. Uh, there was commentary on several networks that are not measured by Nielsen at all. Uh, but all told, about 84 million people uh, watched it, which is fantastic. I always love hearing that Americans are getting fired up. That's 25 percent more than uh, the amount of people who watched the first presidential debate in 2012 uh, between Obama and Romney. And so that's a great sign. I, and I think, admittedly, a lot of people maybe expected a bit of a circus. I don't think it was a circus. I don't think it was necessarily the most stately debate of all time, but it was not as bad as maybe some people expected. Uh, and it's great to see that many people fired up about uh, you know, the civic process. Uh, just to give a few more interesting stats, I was one of apparently the 1.5 million people who streamed it on uh, CBSN. Uh, and 2 million streamed it on YouTube via several different news sources. Uh, so streaming definitely is... Did, did you guys watch... Where did you watch it? Katie, where did you watch the... I was streaming, you? yeah. I mean, I feel like I, I don't have cable, so I wasn't going to go somewhere and watch it. Um, but I think... <laughs> go to the sports bar. Go to the bar and watch it. Yeah, not so much. Um, I, I thought it was interesting, though. It's like one of those things where... You can also kind of keep tabs on what's going on by going on Twitter and seeing what people are saying and looking at the gifts that are coming out and the different quotes that people are choosing. And um, I also weirdly got a lot of information from Snapchat. So people were like putting weird filters on top of, so like all the weird, fil like the dog filter and all that on top of Trump and um, Clinton. And I mean, it's not like you're actually getting information that way, but it's interesting just to see how Snapchat was like playing a part in and people's watching the real-time face swapping was the creepiest yeah it was it was fun tim where'd you watch it i watched it uh in my hotel room i'm you know visiting new york this week for advertising week of course uh and just watched it uh on cnn in my hotel room so um contributed to that big number whatever it was 84 million or yeah it's you know which is funny like that's more than celebrity apprentice ever got so trump should be pretty happy the, uh, what's interesting with streaming, this is now probably the fourth or fifth time I've had this experience where when I watch something on streaming that's highly tweetable, I am a few minutes behind. Um, and it doesn't really matter in the big scheme of things, but when you are trying to be, you know, kind of on that cusp of the Twitter conversation, uh, that minute or two feels like it makes all the difference. Because I remember I'm sitting there and at some point I just had to stop looking at the feed because it was almost like spoiler alerts of what was going to be coming up in the night. But it was all of a sudden you see everyone talking about Sean Hannity, <laughs> who has not come up at all. So suddenly I just see all these tweets about poor Sean Hannity. Someone should really call Sean Hannity. And I'm like, what is happening? And so then you just sit there waiting for like a minute to see. But that's, that's the only real downside of streaming. Other than that, it was a great experience. And I was glad to be able to, as someone who, like Katie, does not have cable. Uh, and I watched it through my Roku um, for free. So that was nice. I wonder how many people called up Sean Hannity and were like, bro, I call you all the time. What is this? <laughs> that should be Sean Andy's new podcast. Call Sean Anity. 
I wouldn't want his advice. It better not be an advice show. The um, Were there any kind of iconic moments, any huge moments that you guys took away as being having some real impact on the kind of Clinton or Trump brands or could actually, or that sparked kind of a lasting social conversation? Well, this is the meme election. So you had like when Hillary looked into the camera for a bit, you've seen multiple videos where it's like um, saying that this is, you know, Clinton's version of the cutaway in the office, like she's Jim Halpert, or laying on the uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm theme while Hillary is like staring into the camera. It's like those, I don't know, those are kind of more significant of the culture we're in right now than, you know, some specific moment. There was no like binders full of women moment. There was not that one thing that everyone's going to talk about for days. I don't know. It's hard to say with Trump because it's just so much of what he says is a binders full of women moment where it's like, how do you actually parse out which one is the thing that you want to focus on? I, I mean, he's a guy who three times, I think, over the course of one debate kind of tacitly admitted to not paying his taxes. Yeah. And that's just not that big of a deal because you're going into it, the level of noise uh, around that candidate is so high that there isn't, whereas Romney was so so calm that if he may, if he slipped and said one kind of dumb thing, it was it was like someone drops a glass in a quiet restaurant. He was bragging about being audited for like 15 years straight. That's strange. I I really thought personally that he would spend much of the debate trying to kind of reposition his brand as being more concerned for the everyman. He does have this populist appeal, um, but he spent a lot of it kind of not just with these first world problems, but with these 1% problems, you know, or even 0.1% problems about like the biggest problem with America is that our airports aren't as good as Dubai. And, you know, he called out LaGuardia, which is kind of a crap hole, but I flew into LaGuardia yesterday, and, I mean, it's it's not the third world, you know? And so I just thought that was interesting. That's, I don't think that's going to be the Main Street appeal that a candidate like him really needs or that either of these candidates really need right now. I think it was funny because, um, you know, we talk a lot about gender in Advertising Week this week. Um, it was a very crazy sort of display of gender norms going on in that uh, debate, first of all. And especially in the last half an hour when I think Trump got a little rattled and started saying really odd things. Like how he you said I, uh, Hillary's been fighting ISIS her entire, her life. entire adult life. Right, and then the whole which thing... Which is kind of a badass thing. <laughs> and then the whole thing about how she doesn't have stamina, which is itself just a weirdly sexist comment. And then, and then he said something about 400-pound people on their beds... Remember that part? Yeah, being hackers. Which I, you know, I was, yeah, being hackers. And I saw a funny tweet on on Twitter about how he just lost the Reddit vote by saying that. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think the one thing that we probably should talk about, Katie and I were talking about this this morning, um, which is that essentially the first debate kind of turned into a, um, I think we saw a Washington Post headline about how it's turned into, you know, a Super Bowl uh, when it comes to ads. There were a ton of ads that were made for the debate. There were a ton of ads that, you know, they spent quite a bit of money to get placed around the debate. Like that um, Tecate wall ad and Mm -hmm. the 
the Audi ad that we're going to talk about? Yeah, definitely. We're going to talk about that in the ads worth watching. But there were also some, like Hillary was on Between Two Ferns last week, and that's basically a giant ad as well, um, which is a you know pretty interesting in in a in a election that's already very sort of self-reflective and almost meta to have the you know have, have a candidate go on to this sort of jokey like show that that half of you know so, some people who watch that don't even know you know people who are watching it for the first time don't don't know what to think of it i think galifianakis said he's not gonna he like won't have trump on i saw that yeah i think uh, variety had the backstory of that whole thing and yeah. uh I think he he seemed to think that Trump's people might actually inquire about it, but he didn't think Trump would want to be on it because he wouldn't want to have those questions asked of him, even in jest. Between Two Ferns with Hillary wasn't surprising because he had landed Obama before. It almost felt as if this was a natural thing that was going to happen. But um, as you were saying before, for someone like Hillary, who a lot of people have trouble finding her to be like human or relatable or, you know, any of these qualities where it seems like she's too stiff. Going on between two ferns and being kind of stiff is exactly what you want. And I think that's part of the reason it was so successful. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think I went back and watched the Obama one. Obama is like giving Zach as many insults as he's getting from Zach. And like Hillary played it totally differently, and I think she probably couldn't do what Obama does. You know, she doesn't have that innate charisma that Obama has. So yeah, almost a send up of her own uh, stiff persona was was probably a good call. There's been a lot of discussion about Hillary achieving a, a, a really historic accomplishment and becoming the first female presidential candidate to make it this far. But I really feel like her most historic accomplishment is reuniting the cast of Will and Grace, which is something that. I mean, I just didn't think anyone could prove possible, but she did it. And they came back together for a anti-Trump uh, video that was in the style of the show as if the show had never gone off the air. And, uh, and it's pretty good. Let's listen to a little bit of it. Jack, you're voting for Hillary, right? Of course he is. Don't pigeonhole me. Not all gays think alike. Oh, I oh, forgot to ask, ask did you, you see Ryan Lockheed, Lockheed get attacked on Dancing with the Stars? <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was great. I, I thought that w what was most fascinating to me is that they really perfectly captured the show. The fact that those stars have aged tremendously well <laughs> was was impressive. But also just it really did feel like like you could not do this with friends. You couldn't pick up with friends like tomorrow and have this kind of thing and have it feel because those actors, those people have come so far and, you know, transitioned so much. But this really was kind of a perfect uh return to form for that show and it, and it shows how media centric this election is i mean no other election would have an old sitcom that went off the air 10 years ago come back and just do an episode uh you know about the about the current election i mean i, I suppose with funny or die and and between two ferns like obama did that a couple of years ago um but it's almost like these media properties i mean we have a reality tv star as one of the main candidates so i guess it's not um particularly surprising but um, I love that video, though. I, I was never, a, 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 I didn't watch the original Will and Grace that much, but um, to see, you know, like it, it, it takes a lot for people in a sitcom to, to have a reunion, as we saw with Full House uh, a couple years ago. Uh, but it was amazing that they were they were able to do that so quickly and just kind of, I think they were all, they all seemed like super into it. Shout out to Megan Mullally. 
who I we're know. going to see at the Clio's. Yeah, Megan Mullally um, also was in another video that we posted this week, which was uh, with her husband, Nick Offerman. Um, they did a reenactment for the Clio Awards of the 1991 Clio uh, trophy uh, ceremony, which was the biggest disaster, most surreal night ever in advertising where um, none of the Clio employees showed up, so the, the caterer was, the, was presenting the awards. And, uh, and at the, uh, halfway through the show, everyone just got so angry that they just stormed the stage and uh, started grabbing Clios. And whether it, it was theirs or not. Whether, whether the, yeah, most of them hadn't won these awards, and they stormed the stage and grabbed them. And I think Adweek at the time um, said it was like watching piranhas uh, eat a cow in a river. I, to this day, <laughs> I think back, like, it doesn't sound real. Like, I know it's real, but... It happened. Yeah, there's it a happened. photo. The, the photo on the cover of Adweek is, like, insane. You just see people running up to the stage and just, like, tripping over each other. It's crazy. Well, we have we have gotten a bit off track, although, uh, yes, yeah, so Megan Mullally and Nick Offerman will be... Uh, by the time you listen to this, they will have already uh, emceed the Clio Awards, which we'll also be talking about in uh, just a second. Actually, uh... Well, one thing I want to say is is we we do get dinged every once in a while for talking uh, about a lot of Hillary ads on our site and not talking about Trump. The reality is Trump just doesn't do a lot of advertising in the way that we would normally cover. It's it's not any sort of institutional bias on our part. It's just that Hillary's campaign has uh, partnered with a lot more agencies and done a lot more traditional creative. Uh, Trump kind of made fun of that uh, a, a bit during the debate, saying she's taking this typical Madison Avenue approach, uh, which, you know— partisanship aside is true in the sense that she's doing a more uh, traditional advertising approach. Um, but uh, Trump did post a video yesterday called America Will Win Again. Uh, and what's interesting to me is tonally, and this this really kind of perfectly reflects the debate, is that it was an entire video of, of Trump talking about himself. It was interview clips with him from the last few decades where he's just talking about how great of a president he would be if he ever decided to run. And then it's quotes from his kids talking about how great he is. And it was just tonally so different from every ad, every video that Hillary has done or that Hillary's team has put together. Uh, so it's clear that he is. This is not a one of those things where the version of him that he shows in the debates is different from the version of him he puts in his own promotional materials. It just it is just him. It kind of seemed like the the narrative thrust of that ad was, you know, I'm Trump and I know I can make America great again, but I've tried to avoid doing it. I want someone else to do this job. And apparently now in 2016, no one else is stepping up to the plate. So it's gotta be me, Mr. Trump. I'm gonna make America great again, which is like, all right, that is, that is one humble brag. <laughs> yeah, I guess his hubris is not something that, you know, clearly he's developed a fan base in spite of that or because of it. Uh, but I thought that was interesting. Um, just cause again, it's not really a, an ad in the way we, we typically think of, but, uh, but you know, it's interesting to see what they're putting out. As I mentioned, uh, by the time you hear this, uh, the Clio awards will have already happened. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday. It's going to be happening tonight. Uh, but we have, uh, swiped away the list of the winners. And so we can talk about a little bit about who is going to win. Um, some of the bigger uh, categories, we've got Microsoft being named the Advertiser of the Year. Uh, they've been doing some some very impressive work. Most of that coming out of McCann, is that correct? Mm -hmm. And uh, Linda Kaplan-Thaler won the Lifetime Achievement Award, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, uh, an excellent pick. She left advertising in February, uh, stepping down as chair of, of publicist Kaplan-Thaler, which now I believe publicist New York. Uh, and, you know, she played a major role in creating the Affleck Duck 
and in the uh, uh, toy, I, I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid and a bunch of the kind of classic uh, 80s ads. Uh, and uh, so excellent pick uh, from them. And since then, she has gone on to be just kind of a full time speaker. Katie, how was uh, she in your Q&A? Because if you wanted to hear yeah, more Yeah, I spoke her. to her for this week's issue, and we did a quick Q&A, and, um, you know, we, we touched on all the, uh, you know, the key moments in her career. We talked about the Toys R Us jingle, which she helped write. Uh, but interestingly, I was asking her, you know, what work are you most proud of? And she mentioned this campaign she did for the Anti-Defamation League, and it was called ADL Imagine, and they actually approached Yoko Ono about it and got... Um, John Lennon's Imagine song for free and the concept behind it was you know what if all of these amazing people like Martin Luther King Jr. and Anne Frank had never died and what would the headlines read like 40 50 years later and apparently it was a big success I don't actually ever remember seeing it but that she said that was like one of her proudest moments in advertising anything you've ever read or heard about licensing Beatles songs it is a storied kind of impossibility yeah. it is one of the hardest things to do in all of marketing. Uh, so that, so I can see why that was so important to her. I think to a lot of people that might just seem like, Oh, sure. Giving it to a yeah. kind of a nonprofit campaign, but no, that is, that is a tremendously rare achievement. Um, so that makes sense. A- anything else that came up uh, of interest in talking with her? I mean, yeah, she's just like on the speaker track these days. She has a new book out. I think it's called grit to great, something like that. It's about, you know, just, trying to, I think part of it is addressing women in the industry. Obviously, gender is a big topic and, you know, how you can get more women in leadership positions and what it takes to to get there. Um, So she's kind of going on a speaker route right now and just talking about her new book and enjoying her time away from advertising, I guess. And who are some of the other big winners, Tim? So uh, a number of campaigns that we've seen and written quite a bit about uh, are winning Grand Clios tonight. So uh, one of them being uh, REI, Opt Outside, which, as we all know, has been awarded by lots of different shows. Uh, That is winning the Grand Clio for experiential as well as PR. So that's a multiple winner. Uh, The other multiple winner uh, is the Swedish Tourist Association with uh, the Swedish number. Uh, which was a, uh, they created a phone number for anyone in the world who just wanted to call Sweden, and it would go into, you could call this number, and it would go into a switchboard in Sweden, and it would get routed to a random Swede who had signed up. Uh, didn't you Didn't you talk to another Swiss, or a, a Swedish reporter? A Swedish Tim Nudd. <clears throat> I did. When, I, when, the, when that campaign first broke, I came, I was happened to be in New York, and I came into the office early, and I called uh, the number, and I got the AP bureau chief in Stockholm on the other end, who was doing research for a story he was writing about. So it was supposed to be a story about a marketing campaign, and we just, we just had one journalist talking to another about it <laughs> over the phone. Um, but it was, you know, a pretty brave campaign. Um, they didn't vet these people at all. Like, that was kind of the whole point, is to have it to be totally transparent and unfiltered. And uh, so that's going to win tonight in uh, direct and innovation. And innovation is actually a new category for Clio. And it was, the jury was made up uh, completely of clients, which is kind of interesting. Uh, al- almost always, um, everyone else who judges Clio is a, is a creative of some kind, not, not on the client side, but on the agency side. So that was new for them, and it was, you know, it was kind of nice to see um, uh, them, you know, recognize such a great campaign like the Swedish number. The, the jury chair was actually Steve Veronica, who's who's the ECD at Google Creative Lab. So 
pretty pretty good guy to have on your first uh, your first jury president for that. Uh, a few other campaigns that that we would you'd probably recognize: um, Van Gogh B and B from from Leo Burnett uh, won for branded entertainment, which is kind of interesting. You think of a uh, it was an Airbnb uh, tie-in. If you think about uh, an Airbnb rental of a of a room made to look like a painting as as entertainment, but that that's what they uh, awarded it uh, for. And then uh, another interesting thing: they had a Grand Clio. The Grand Clio for product design tonight is going to Herman Miller. Uh, for this newfangled um, office furniture that they made. Uh, I'm sure everyone remembers the Aeron chair, which was kind of the, the really famous uh, chair that Herman Miller made at, like back in the 90s that every, every office that was cool had a bunch of uh, Aeron chairs. So apparently they've, they're trying to bring um, office uh, furniture into the, the, you know, the next phase, and they've, they've created all these modular pieces that kind of fit together and it's all based around your desk. They've they've tried to make your desk like a really comfortable place to hang out, um, and it's called uh, public office landscape. Um, so if you want to check it out, just just Google Herman Miller public office landscape. This stuff is beautifully designed, and I'd never heard of it before. And it's pretty cool to see that kind of work uh, winning for product design. So anything else? Uh, any other winners you wanted to talk about? Well, so the Lockheed Martin field trip to Mars uh, is winning for Digital Mobile, uh, another great piece. Uh, and also the Remy Quantro, uh, the Not Coming Soon, the movie that they made with, uh, with John Malkovich that no one will be able to see for 100 years because that's how long it takes to bottle uh, a bottle of Louis Trace. Uh, I swear Quantro. I saw some, some famous person. I'm pretty sure it was uh, Kirsten Dunst post on Instagram about how she got an invitation to go and see the actual movie. I think that was a misconception. I don't think anyone's actually seen the movie. I think there was, uh, I think what they, there was an event where people could go and see the physical copy of the, whatever it is. Like literally see the movie. Like you can see the movie in a case, like, like in a case on a thumb drive or something or whatever. But you can't know, supposedly not even Robert Rodriguez who directed the movie has seen the movie. I, I don't know. I don't buy it. Somewhere there's an editor who got paid like a small fortune and never actually edited together a movie. They just dropped a thumb drive under a glass case and said, "People yeah, are going to be people I are going to be it. disappointed in uh, in a hundred years if that's the case." But that's winning uh, in branded content, which is separate from branded entertainment, which the Van Gogh B&B won. And aside from that, uh, film is always a big category, of course, in any in any award show. And Old Spice, smell legendary spots, uh, won the Grand Cleo there with the guy playing tennis on the back of the whale. Oh yeah, uh, we've all probably seen that stuff. It's pretty awesome. So, lots of great work being recognized tonight. Um, and you know, some of it we've certainly seen before, but uh, check out the Herman Miller stuff. I think that's really special. Yeah, that's a good. It's nice to to kind of discover something new in these. Uh, a few very small uh, news bits, but that struck out to me as uh, kind of interesting. Uh, Volkswagen's rolling out a car that's literally called the hashtag Pink Beetle. Uh, I just love anything that that gets a legitimate hashtag name. Like when something that's all it's called, like opt, opt Outside is officially the campaign was just called hashtag Opt Outside. And now we have seen that literally coming to the product level with a car called Pink Beetle. Uh, Tim, this came out on our on our Ad Freak blog uh, that you oversee, and if I remember right, this was supposedly inspired by fans who had been doing this themselves or taking like the DIY approach to creating a pink beetle. Yeah, supposedly um, there weren't enough pink beetles in the world, so people were painting their own beetles pink, um, 
you know, we, we spoke last week about the, uh, the car that was designed exclusively for women. At least Volkswagen didn't come out and say, this is a pink beetle and it's only for women. That could have been, that would have been a lot worse. Um, but they, it's a cool thing. I mean, it's all, it's, it's basically this whole pink beetle idea evolved out of social and the social listening apparently on the brand's part is, is what, you know, sent this thing into, into production. It was originally just a concept car about a year ago. Um, but yeah, I think we're in, um, I'm not that surprised that the official vehicle name is a hashtag. I think we were always heading that direction. Uh, we do this sometimes in our headlines. We, we put hashtags in, in the ad freak headlines because when people tweet them out, it kind of joins the hashtag conversation around whatever topic so hashtags are just embedded in the culture now and um apparently you can name any product after them now too and sadly apparently the actual color is called fresh fuchsia metallic so it should probably be called hashtag fresh fuchsia metallic beetle don't call it fresh why is that paint color fresh have you seen it it's pretty fresh Imagine if instead they were just like, all right, we know you guys like doing DIY car paint. So instead of painting your beetle pink for you, we're sending you spray paint and it's going to be an experience with you and your beetle. That'd be the worst. (laughs) It'd be terrible. They should think about that. That would be pretty fun. Yeah, I would do that. (laughs) (laughs) Just send the check to Christina Monlos and Adweek. Uh, I'll take it. So that's it. We've lingered quite a bit on news, but uh, very fun to talk about the debate. And again, I just am ecstatic to see so many Americans really caring about the debates um, and uh, and so much more going on. Uh, but before we get to back to Advertising Week and some of the other topics that are coming back uh, up throughout the week, let's do ads worth watching. This is our weekly roundup of the ads that are worth your time. In a world where you don't have much of it, uh, we want to only highlight the best of the ads. Tim, what are this week's ads worth watching? So the one I want to talk about first is this Audi commercial. Uh, it's called Duel, and it was uh, created basically for the debates this year. There's, it's going to air th- only three times on television uh, during on the night of each of the three debates. And it's really a great ad. I mean, it's, I, I think it's actually probably top five ads of the year so far, I would say. It's this commercial... Um, from Venables Bell, the agency that also did uh, Opt Outside, which we just spoke about, the REI, the REI campaign. And it's a 90-second cut online. I think it aired uh, in, a, in a slight cut down uh, during, during the debate broadcast. But it's basically, it starts out with this man and woman, <clears throat> and they're, they're sort of uh, battling. They, they appear to have fallen through a skylight onto a seafood buffet in a giant ballroom. And you don't really know what's happening because all the footage is in reverse. So you basically begin at the end of the story. And over the course of 90 seconds, they have this epic uh, fight, uh, this man and woman on a rooftop. And then they're inside the hotel and uh, they're smashing through uh, walls. They're throwing lobsters on each other. It's kind of this insane, uh, amazingly choreographed fight scene between these two. And... Uh, spoiler, at the very end, you learn that they are uh, valets at the hotel, and they've been fighting over the who's going to get to park the Audi R7 that has arrived. And I think it's just, it's one of those ads that uh, the idea is awesome and the execution is awesome. And when those two things come together in a spot like this, um, it's really, really memorable. I think uh, also the production values on this thing are incredible. The director was uh, Ringan uh, Ledwidge, who... Doesn't do a lot of ads, but he's a pretty uh, renowned director over in England. He directed the Three Little Pigs ad for The Guardian uh, that won so many ad awards a few years back. 
And the choreography, everything from the stunt choreography to uh, just the cinematic visuals, the way the editing is, it's, all, it's got these like little matrix moments where time slows down for a second. And, and the whole thing's uh, in reverse, which is a great sort of way to tell a story uh, without giving away the ending. So I think it's one of the probably best ads I've seen in a while. And in fact, we've talked a lot about Audi in the last few weeks. They've done some amazing commercials lately. Um, but this one, I think, really... Um, sort of outdoes all the others. Did you guys see it? What did you guys think of it? Um, so I think that one of the great bits about it is that it's an ad where two people are fighting each other and it's a, it's a man and a woman and they're fighting each other as they would fight anyone. And, you know, that might seem small, but to me, I'm like, I would, I would like to see a, a fisticuffs portrayed in this way. Not that I'm encouraging violence, <laughs> but there's no gender yeah. like, inequality or, yeah, or it even. Has, it has gender parity. It's true, and it, it's also it it ties in with the man and the woman um, debating in the presidential debates. I mean, it, it fits really nicely into you know the whole uh, zeitgeist at the moment. Well, like with Audi's last ad, they're they're definitely trying to. Uh, court women just as they are men where the woman pulls up at the end and she has her own Audi in the last ad yeah. watching week. Katie, what did you think? I liked it a lot. I think it, it really did kind of feel like you're watching an action scene in a movie um, and it just, I like the fact that it kept you kind of guessing, like you want to know the whole time. It, it takes you through you know, the kitchen, it takes you through the hotel, like you want to know what, what's happening, where it's going to end. So it really does capture your attention the whole time. Um, and I, I mean, I didn't see it live, so I don't know where how it was cut. But when you're watching the full 90 seconds, it's it's really intriguing. And um, it's kind of unlike anything I've really ever seen. And it's kind of funny that they're making ads for the debates, right? Like BBH had a big hit uh, earlier uh, in, in the in the year when they ran a, a, a fake campaign ad for Frank Underwood on one of the Republican presidential debates that started out like, well, who is this going to be for? It's got to be for someone who's debating tonight. And it turns out to be a fictional ad for Frank Underwood. So clearly agencies are sort of looking at these presidential debates as a great me media choice. And the other brand that did something uh, the other night was Tecate Beer, which uh, is a Mexican uh, beer, normally uh, targets Hispanics, uh, Hispanic market only, but this was uh, an opportunity. They decided to do their first general market commercial, and it sort of played off uh, Trump's call to build a wall between the nations, and so the the ad, which isn't on the level of Audi Duel, but um, as an idea, it was quite fun. They 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 built the Tecate beer wall, and they had the Americans and, and Mexicans sort of meeting up there to have beers, and it's, a, it's, it's only like three feet high, which is sort of a hilarious visual, and they, they're sort of resting their beers on it. And it was just sort of another way to, to kind of newsjack the, uh, the debate in, a, in an interesting way. The other ad I wanted to talk about briefly was the new H&M, another marketer, actually, that we've talked quite a bit about already this year. Uh, they have a new short film out with Kevin Hart and David Beckham, and I know, Christina, you wrote that one up. So could you tell us a little bit about that one? Well, it's a follow-up to their campaign last year where um, David Beckham kind of was like, what? When marketers were saying that they would cast um, Kevin Hart to play him in, in a, a biopic uh, called I Beckham. 
And this this time around, it seems as though that movie has come out. Kevin Hart has, you know, gotten some acclaim for playing Beckham, and now the two are on their way to pitch a musical version in Las Vegas because that is what would happen. The two the two people behind a pitch would definitely be the star and uh, the person who is playing. Um, and it, it kind of, you know, it puts uh, David Beckham in this in this straight man role, which is something he excels at. There was also this H&M ad that they did with James Corden, where it was James Corden and Beckham both posing in their underwear. I guess H&M just really knows how to use him. And also, Kevin Hart is one of the biggest stars there is right now, so it's just... I don't know. It's fun. Yeah, it's Kevin smart. was in that uh, Hyundai commercial on the Super Bowl that ended up winning the USA Today ad meter, actually. So he's kind of People a love him. Yeah, he's a go-to guy in ads now, too. Well, before we move on, let's listen to a little bit of that ad. So this is H&M with David Beckham and Kevin Hart. I'm really starting to think I should never have agreed to this. Here's the thing, man. Those Vegas money men, they are going to eat up the idea of a musical, David. I know what I'm talking about. You can sing, right? Everybody can sing. Just the two of us. Kev is so painful. You and I. Talk about us. Can I drive? Yeah, you you can drive, Dave. All right. Tim, thanks as always for pulling together all of our uh, ads worth watching. Of course. Fun roundup. And we're going to move on to even deeper levels of ad nerdery as we talk about Advertising Week. Uh, So again, for those who don't know, this is a series of events unaffiliated with us, Ad Week. Uh, Advertising Week is uh, held in different cities around the world. And this week's is New York, which is the flagship event. And uh, we have been attending, moderating, uh, kind of observing, covering. Uh, So first, I just wanted to kind of talk about what you've seen, uh, which panels you've gotten to go to. We're about halfway through the week so far right now. Katie, what have you gotten to attend? So I've actually been doing, uh, yesterday I spent quite a bit of time at the 4A's talent conference, and there's been a lot of conversation there, obviously, about talent and gender diversity. Um, I went to a really great session yesterday with Nancy Hill, who's the president of the 4A's, and uh, the chief creative officer from General Mills, and they were talking about uh, this move from General Mills to kind of demand a diversity quota from the agencies that it works with. So it's looking for 50% of people in the agencies they work with to be female, 20% need to be people of color. And they were kind of talking through, you know, why they made that decision, what the impact is going to be, how agencies are reacting. So that was kind of a, that was a standout one for me. How are agencies reacting? He, he wasn't, he didn't say they were enthusiastic about it, but, um, you know, they've, they're understanding that uh, it's something that they need to work towards. And, you know, you haven't seen any General Mills agencies just say, like, I'm done, I'm out. So I think it's, it's a sign that they're going to be working together. Um, the, the interesting thing, though, was that he mentioned, you know, a lot of people, a lot of media outlets covered it as, you know, if you're an agency and you don't have don't meet these numbers in the next six months, you're not going to be able to work with General Mills. But he really stressed that it's something that he wants his agencies to work towards in a year, two years. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, based on our coverage, which I thought was uh, was 
pretty good about making this point is that it's more about laying out that this needs to be a priority going forward. And because as long as it's something that the executives, you know, the, the truth of the advertising world, the agency world is that those executives care about what their clients care about. I mean, there's, there are certainly exceptions. There are agency leaders who are kind of would pursue these kinds of initiatives on their own and through their own personal passions. Uh, but, but in reality, the vast majority of the time, those priorities at the executive level are driven by what the clients want. And so I thought this was a great example of the clients leveraging or taking advantage of that leverage that they have with agencies to, to make this a priority going forward. Uh, what other sessions have you gone to? Uh, well, so I actually had a chance to moderate a panel earlier this week with uh, Sarah Hofstetter, the CEO of 360i, and Carla Hendra from Ogilvy Red. And again, it was discussions around gender. We were talking about how having a diverse agency is good for business and how it, you know, kind of propels the agency to do better work at the end of the day. So, I mean, mostly the, the things that I've noticed are just conversations around making sure that we're getting, that agencies are getting more women in leadership positions and that in turn will lead to better creative work. So that's kind of been a, a highlight from the ones I've seen. You know, barring something like 3% conference or a conference that's explicitly created to talk about gender issues, this is by far the biggest uh, in terms of an event being focused on gender balance, on empowering women. They have as many sessions at Advertising Week this year on empowering women. I would say gender, but this doesn't even include some things like trans discussions, uh, but just on empowering women and increasing that, uh, the gender balance. Uh, there are as many sessions about that as there are about data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a whole track this year that's just like the stages are kind of sponsored to be gender specific and gender focused, which is huge. I I mean, I feel like it's an accomplishment that we're moving past the all male panel in general. But I think if other events can really kind of take up this torch of not just who's on your panels, but the lineup of your panels, you know, making sure that they represent more than just kind of the. Uh, you know, they, they, and there was a really funny one. You end up with these kind of traditional old school advertising week sessions. I know I sent the screenshot of this maybe to a few of you, but it was like there was a session called the importance of gender balance in improving creativity. And then the session right after that in an, in another hall was called like, we know you like to watch colon, you know, video trends. And it was an all male panel. And I was just like, it was such an interesting artifact of like these are the traditional kind of presentations of three guys and a sex joke as a title and then versus you know the kind of the the new wave uh they may have gone a little overboard this year but i think it's interesting that they uh made you know in the end you ended up with a lot of sessions that sound very similar uh but that that's just conferences in general yeah that's gonna happen i will say it's problematic when you have a lot of those sessions and you go to those sessions and the only audience there it's it's a lot of women like it's a it's a lot yeah. of women when you go to those sessions. It's not the audience you need to get. This was really visible and kind of upsetting at Cannes this year. Uh, I went to one of the relatively few sessions about uh, major sessions about gender balance. Um, I walked in and admittedly I was on the upper level, which not not the main floor, but usually this whole theater was packed for most presentations. These were a lot of the women who star on Saturday Night Live at the moment were, were presenting. Uh, and then the title was something about gender balance. There was no one there. 
you know, I walk in and there, there were a handful of women that whom, you know, sadly whom I knew, which goes to show it's not even just like a low turnout. It's like the few of us who kind of care about this issue were there. And then there was a smattering of other people, but the, there were certainly not the kind of agency CEOs who need to be there. Um, and, and so you're right. It's a, one thing I look at now when I go to these sessions is, is how many guys turned out for this and how many, and at what levels are those people operating? Is it the CEOs? We keep covering these top level executives who clearly have terrible uh, perspectives on, on gender balance and the importance of equality. And if they're not turning out for these events, what you, you almost have to wonder how much is really being accomplished, but you can't, you can, Lead the horse to water. One of the other things I will say is that if you're going to have all of these events and you're only going to focus on women and, the, and women's representation within that, then that's problematic because the only way that we can we can change the gender stereotypes that we see is if we're changing the way we represent men and boys as well and show that as you know varied as it is in reality. And so I think if you have a lot of those panels, and it's great, I'm really happy that this is a, a prime, um, you know, taking up a lot of prime real estate uh, during advertising week, but I think you have to consider, you know, if the only message that you're sending is that you need to really consider the way that you're showing women, then you're not actually talking fully about gender. And I, I feel like that's kind of the... That's the goal, right, of gender balance is gender balance in staffing, especially in the creative industry. Someone brought up last night at a, at a reception I was at that that they, one of the worst is uh, actually the production industry, audio production. They were talking about specifically, but I would say it probably transcends that. And production is a huge part of everything we do in advertising. And they were saying that, that is, if you think creative is bad on gender imbalance. Look at the production industry. And there are groups that are, a woman started an organization uh, out in California to kind of get more women involved in the production industry and in those jobs. Because in the end, you know, I think for now, I guess I what I'm saying is I don't begrudge people wanting to focus on let's get gender balance and get more women and get women treated more fairly in the advertising world. Because the end result will be when you get that balance, you'll get those perspectives in the mix and you'll get so that so that the kind of issues you're talking about how boys are portrayed in a more balanced and and modern way i think will be achieved by getting this gender balance in the first place Uh, tim you've uh moderated at least one session i did moderate a session i've been covering uh the creative uh, side of the business of course for doing this advertising week and i moderated a pretty interesting session uh sponsored by leo burnett which was about uh, online video and and where that's heading so uh, Vincent Garrity, who's the executive director of production at, at Burnett, was on the panel, as was uh, Mary Gail Pezzamenti, who uh, is in branded content over at uh, Huffington Post. And then the third person on the panel was Andrew Keller, uh, global creative director of Facebook's Creative Shop. And we sort of, it was an interesting discussion because, you know, it used to be where you'd have the agency and the brand and they would try to work together and they would create a TV spot. And that was basically... Uh, and they create a whole campaign and TV was kind of central to it. Now you've got, uh, in Mary Gale's case, you've got a publisher who's working directly with brands, also directly with agencies, uh, to try to create content for a specific editorial platform. And then, of course, in Andrew Keller's case, you've got uh, a, an enormous uh, platform like Facebook. Uh, and so he's working with agencies and with brands uh, to create 
you know, ads that make sense for Facebook and they're going to break through on Facebook. So where you used to have this kind of duality between the client and the agency, now you've got the platform in there and you've got the publisher in there and it, it complicates things. And, and the questions become, uh, how do you, how do you uh, approve things and how, how do you work together collaboratively if you have these three groups? And oftentimes you've got more than that, of course. Uh, and it's a difficult thing. And, and and online video formats are changing so quickly. I mean, you've got like Snapchat stories and you've got uh, live video and you've got 360 and you've got all these different places uh, that you can put a piece of work and you've got all different shapes that a piece of work can be. And it's really difficult for agencies to sort of navigate that space now. So we talked a lot about that and uh, we, we actually did a video with Andrew that'll be up on the site probably on Thursday. Uh, I asked him, you know, what, what is Facebook uh, asking of agencies and what does it want agencies to, to provide and how is it working directly with them? And, and so he had some pretty interesting answers there and he also had some cool things to say about um, where he thinks 360 and VR are headed as well as live streaming. I and mean, live streaming is a, is a crazy thing for brands because, you know, brands really want to control their message and live, live broadcasting is sort of the opposite of controlling your message. So what he talked a little bit about what kinds of uh, ads can work in live streaming, which is cool as well. And the other thing I've been doing this week is we've started a new creative video series. It's called uh, My Three Favorite Ads. So I'm asking uh, creative people in the industry uh, which uh, ads that are, are their favorite of all time. Uh, two of them can be uh, one of them, I should say, can be something that they made, and then the other two need to be something that someone else made. So we've interviewed uh, Lisa Topol over at Gray. She's an ECD at Gray. And we also interviewed uh, uh, Jamie Robinson, who's uh, the CCO over at uh, uh, Joan Creative. And uh, we also are today are interviewing Ralph Watson from Crispin Porter. So we're getting some really cool people to talk about um, not only their three favorite ads, but we're also asking them to tell us when as a, as a kid that they first realized they were creative and they're, we're coming back, they're coming back with some pretty amusing stories. So, um, check out our site for that. It's called, uh, my three favorite ads. And I think we're going to do, uh, this series into the fall as well. Did Jamie mention, uh, Joan's work for Netflix? She did. Um, so we're all, in addition to my three favorite ads, we're asking them what recent work, which may not be there among their three favorite ever, uh, what recent work they're doing that interests them. So she talked a little bit about Netflix. Um, she also talked about just creating an agency from scratch and, and how that's a creative process. And uh, that's also been interesting uh, to her. And she also had told a funny story about, um, you know, she has a twin sister and she had some funny stories about growing up and Lisa Topol did as well. So these, these videos are turning out pretty nice, I think. And uh, it'll be sort of a new uh, creative product that we'll have that I think everyone will enjoy. So that's about it. Um, lots more to, to happen this week. Uh, we're only halfway through advertising week, uh, but always a lot of fun to get out and see some of these panels and to, more just to hear what marketers are into, concerned about, scared of, uh, and we're going to continue to see more of that. I guess one last question I'd ask is just what do you think is the value of the advertising week event? Tim, you've been going for a good long time. What, what value does it have to you? Well, like you say, it certainly makes you aware of what everyone in the industry is thinking about. It brings people together. Uh, it gets people talking both on stage and off stage just about these issues. Um, you know, as journalists, when we go to these panels, sometimes it's hard to sort of get, um, unless you're talking about a tech panel where there's nice little chunks of news in there. Um, some of the ad panels are, are tough to, to 
take some news out of, but it's also just great to, I think, immerse yourself in these in these talks and just uh, even if you, even if we don't write stories, I think it's valuable for us to go. And I think you know it is valuable for for people in the industry to to come and, and at least have kind of a big group discussion about you know what the, what particularly what the problems of the industry are. I think gender, uh, as much as people talk about it as an opportunity and and how it's evolving, it's also a problem in the industry. So um, also creative problems. Um, people t- talking a lot about those this week. So. If, if you haven't been, I think it's probably worth uh, at least trying it out. Um, there's so much to see. I mean, that's the other problem is like picking which ones you're going to go to is, is half the battle. But yeah, I mean, I think Advertising Week has certainly has its place as far as setting the, the tone of, of certain debates in the business. I see a lot more young people at Advertising Week than I do at almost any other industry event. Have you noticed that, Katie? Yeah, I see a lot of people with the student passes. Um, and I think, I mean, I think for them it's a really great opportunity because they really probably don't know a lot about the industry and they're not as immersed in it. You know, they might read our site and see what's going on, but it's a really great way for them to maybe make connections, maybe help down the line get a job, but also just kind of learn what's really happening. I mean, kind of the bummer about a lot of the major conferences in our industry is you've got, you know, these A&A conferences, which are just brands. So you go there and it's just brands. You go to a 4A's event, it's just agencies, you know, and so you don't get a lot of cross-pollination. You go to Cannes, there's no young people or, you know, not not kind of going to attend. That's thousands of tens of thousands of dollars to get to go to something like that. Uh, so I've always really valued with Advertising Week is there's just a more not to say necessarily a a diverse crowd in the traditional way of thinking about that, but a diverse uh, kind of collection of backgrounds and ages. And everyone I talked to at the reception that we had after our panel last night, uh, everyone was from a completely different background, you know, experiential production person and then an agency person, then a student. It was kind of fun. Just everyone I talked to was from a completely different uh, background. So uh, definitely a cool event. We'll uh, have a lot more coverage on adweek.com. So check out uh, adweek.com throughout the week. And uh, we have got a really easy link at the top to find all of our coverage from Advertising Week sessions. Like Hillary, we're asking you to go to our website. Go to our website for fact-checking on Advertising Week panels. Uh, We love to get emails from listeners. So send an email to podcast at adweek.com, and we might read it on a future episode. Uh, and uh, give us your feedback. And we have a lot of stuff coming up soon, my favorite being the annual Hot List voting. Uh, Hot List is Adweek's, uh, it's kind of two lists. There's the list of our editor's picks for kind of some of the hottest things happening in digital television uh, magazines, but we also want your input. So starting next week, we've got uh, voter readers can vote on adweek.com for our three major areas of the hottest personalities and brands and publications and startups uh, across. It's broken into three categories, digital, uh, television, and print magazines. Uh, So definitely check that out. Look for that next week. And then we will have all of our winners uh, in, I believe, in two months or so is when it comes out. So we give people a good long time to vote. That's about it for this week's episode. Our theme music is by Home. Uh, This week's episode was edited by Kevin Eck. Thank you, Kevin. And uh, please take a moment, if you like this show, if you like what we're doing, uh, leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Uh, Those are really important to us to help get the word out uh, about the podcast. So if you know any other advertising nerds, that's a good way to introduce them to the show. Thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you, Tim Nudd, uh, for joining us. Sure. Thank you. And uh, Katie Richards, uh, thank you. It's great to have you back, and we'll have you back on again soon. Thank you. And Christina Monlo, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. 
firing at all cylinders. Still, still firing. We will see you next week. Take care.